You know, I can remember a preacher saying this one time, and it was very curious, and it caught my attention. The preacher said, when God saved me, of course, God saved him when he was in his late teens or early 20s. He said, God had to deliver me twice. He said, twice. He said, first of all, God had to set me free from the world. I had to be delivered from the influence of the world. And God set me free from the world. And of course, while the preacher was saying this, everyone was agreeing and shouting. And he said, secondly, after God set me free from the world and I became a part of the church, I was zealous and excited and passionate about doing God's work. But then God had to deliver me again. And then he had to deliver me from the church. From the church, you say. When he first said that, I remember being very curious. And what, what is he going to say next? What is he talking about? But he talked about when he was a Christian and zealous and fervent and passionate. That there were members of the church body that were well-meaning and kind and loving. But their outlook and perspective was that this zealous and fiery young man is going to finally settle down and become like everyone else. And just like in the world, he felt pressure. He felt the world kind of, try, kind of trying to impose expectations upon him. It wasn't very long until even in the church he felt subtle imposition of, uh, of the church's members of the body of Christ who expected that his level of passion and his level of obsession with Jesus Christ should simmer down a little bit until he became like everyone else. He said, if I'm going to do what God wants me to do, I've not only got to be delivered from the expectations of the world, but I've got to be delivered from some negative expectations of my brothers and sisters. Because there is always pressure... Pressure to normalize. Pressure to move away from being too radical and too extreme. I heard of a term the other day. Someone said there's a term called zealing. Has anybody heard the term zealing before? I'd never even heard of the term zealing, which is an idea that somebody who's new in church and new with Christ, they're going through this process of being very zealous, that they'll get over it in time. But the reality is that followers of Jesus Christ, when I look into the New Testament, when I look into the Word of God, they are people who are characterized by passion, by zeal, by fervency, by being obsessed. But there is, not only in the world, in the church, as we mentioned, this pressure to fit in and to basically meet the temperature of your surroundings. In Revelation, the Bible talks about a church. In uh, uh, the uh, Revelations chapters 2, 3, and 4, the letters that were given to uh, the angels of the churches. And there was a church in Laodicea. The Bible says that this church in Laodicea was a church that was lukewarm. Some of you have heard this before, that the Lord said to this church, I would that you are either hot or cold. But since you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. And I remember hearing this when I was a child, and I, I, maybe I heard it preached or taught that 
God was saying, I'd rather you either be on fire for God or totally so far away from God and backslidden that, uh, that you are just considered cold rather than being lukewarm, which means just kind of being in that uh, temperate state where you fit in with your surroundings. But I got to thinking about this passage of Scripture. I looked at it in context, and I realized that that's probably not what it means. God does not want us to be straight-up backslid. Everybody said amen. Amen. I read that scripture and I was like, well, maybe the Bible says God would rather me either be passionate and fervent and on fire for God or he'd rather me be out peddling drugs and hanging around in the casinos and messing around with loose women. God would rather have me one or the other rather than just be sitting on a pew just biding time. That's not what the scripture is talking about. When it talks about being hot or cold, it's figurative language describing something that you would eat, either hot or or cold. That's why God, uh, Jesus said, since you're not hot or cold, instead lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. How many realize we're not really in Jesus' mouth? He was using figurative language to describe the pleasure of eating something that's hot, that's supposed to be hot, or drinking something cool that's supposed to be cool. But when you get something that's supposed to be hot, but now it's room temperature, you don't want it. Now, I mean, personally, I like coffee. But I like it hot. And, you know, you've been drinking coffee and it's kind of cool and cool. And then you go set it on the counter and you go comb your hair, brush your teeth. Or hopefully you didn't brush your teeth because then you'll drink coffee again. But comb your hair and get ready. And then you go back and you get that one last drink of coffee and it got lukewarm on you. Anybody been like me before? It's like, oh. And you just want to get rid of it. Because it's not supposed to be room temperature. And I don't like things that are supposed to be cold that's room temperature. I like my Pepsi Cola cold. Nana, you like your Coke cold. She she likes Coca-Cola. She likes it cold. We like cold things cold, hot things hot. Room temperature is not what we want our coffee, and room temperature is not what we want our soda. This is the illustration here, that I'd rather have something that's supposed to be hot, hot, supposed to be cold, cold. But the reality is, you can take coffee, and you can take that ice-cold Coke, but if you leave it in the room long enough, it's going to become lukewarm, right? It's go- What's it do? It, it becomes, the, the term we use is room temperature. That means it takes on the characteristics of its surroundings. It becomes like everything around it. You don't have to convince it to do so. You don't have to say, come on, Coke, warm up now. Or, come on, coffee, it's time to cool down. It happens automatically. It begins to take on the influence of its surroundings. And the reality is, if you don't keep the coffee pot plugged in, all the coffee in the pot is going to go lukewarm. And if you don't keep the refrigerator plugged in, you can keep the Cokes in the fridge, but they're going to go to lukewarm because you've got to keep it plugged in to a source to keep the hot, hot, and the cold, cold, or else it all becomes room temperature. Let me tell you what the Lord is saying right here. If you look and act and conduct yourself like everybody around you, you're not pleasing to the Lord. There should be something about you that stands out. But the only way you can stand out is by being plugged in to the power source. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it through the force of your will or because you desire to do so. You have got to be plugged in to the power of God. God says, I don't want you to be like everybody else. I don't want you to fall prey to the expectations of this world. 
I also don't want you to fall prey to the expectations of a lukewarm church. Lukewarm Christianity. Where, hey, I'm better than the people in the world. I'm a lot better than that guy down the street. That's lukewarm mentality. We don't compare ourselves among ourselves, but we compare ourselves to a holy God that we will never, ever measure up to. And so there's always this humble pursuing after Jesus Christ because there's zeal and passion in our heart. Amen? So I believe that passage of Scripture is talking about not that God wants us to be cold spiritually as we would Uh, discern coldness or hot spiritually. I believe God is saying he wants us to be distinctive. He doesn't want us just to acquiesce to the pressure around us to come to the expectations. When I observe the Christianity in the Bible and contemporary Christianity, I see many incongruencies. The Christianity in the Bible is quite a bit different than contemporary Christianity that I see today. When I compare the ministry of Jesus Christ, His style, His approach, His themes, His preaching, and I compare it to some popular Christian communicators today, I see a lot of incongruencies as well. When I look at the ministry of Jesus, he was looking for people that were ready to dive in head first. He was looking for individuals that were willing to forsake all and turn their back on everything and pursue after him. When we look at popular Christianity today, this idea of being a follower of Jesus Christ has been so candy-coated and so watered down to where people have not been delivered the correct expectation about what it means to really follow Jesus. And then they go after what the world says is following Jesus or the Christian world says is following Jesus. And it ends up leaving them empty. It ends up leaving them depressed and discouraged and wondering if there's anything to this Jesus thing. I'm telling you, there is something to this Jesus thing, but it only works If you die out to the old man, if you take up your cross and you follow after Jesus Christ. Talking about the profile. The profile of the obsessed. Very popular public ministries today. When you listen to the ministry, it sounds like clever and slick marketing of Jesus. Or self-help. Self-improvement. I'm going to give you some tips that will help you be a better husband. I'm going to give you some ideas how to reform your life so you're a little better. And I believe in all that. I believe we should do what we can. There's biblical principles about improving ourselves. But when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he says, why don't you follow me? We're going to go die together. Uh, You know, that weeded out a lot of people. When Jesus said that a lot of people, and a lot of people misunderstood him, he said, unless you feast on my body and drink of my blood, you can never be my disciple. People are like, ugh, I'm out of here. Now, what popular evangelist would say something like that today? What are they doing? They're making sure they never say anything to offend. But guess what? The gospel's a sword. It divides. It's offensive. It separates those that are serious from those that came to play. And when you look at the words of Jesus, he didn't have time to mess around. He said, are you going to follow me or are you going to follow this world? Are you in love with the kingdom of God or are you in love with your riches? Are you in love with the destiny of heaven or are you in love with this present world? (laughs) 
Jesus described the kingdom of heaven this way in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Words of Jesus. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom I'm establishing is like this. It's like a treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth. And for the joy, everybody say joy. The joy thereof goeth and selleth all. All that he hath and buyeth that field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Who when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me tell you about the kingdom of of God. There's good news. And for some people it may be bad news. But it's not really bad news. The good news is, in this story, you found a field with a treasure in it. Everybody say, I don't know what we'll say. I couldn't think of anything cool to say. All that came to my mind was bingo. Everybody say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. We found a treasure in a field. Yeah, like, like Jed from... The Beverly Hillbillies. Shooting at some food, and up from the ground comes a bubbling crude. And my little house and my little side of the country here that nobody would look at twice, old ramshackle house, worthless property out in the hills, all of a sudden's worth millions of dollars. I found a treasure in the field. Everybody say that's good news. There's nothing like the kingdom of God. Nothing that will give meaning to your life. and Nothing that will give purpose to your life. Like being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. If you're not a part of the kingdom, you're just wandering through life. You're experiencing the empty promises that end up leaving you hollow and unfulfilled. You can't find what you've been looking for in another relationship. You can't find what you've been looking for in buying another car. You'll never be able to find what you've been looking for by buying that brand new house. You'll never be able to find... What you've been looking for anywhere in this world. Because the treasure's in the field. It's something everybody else overlooks. Nobody even knows how beautiful and powerful it is. Come on, when you're sold out. When you've given your life to Jesus. When you put yourself all in. There's nothing like living for God. There's a treasure in the field. That's good news. The pearl of great price. The merchant man's been looking for this his whole life. More valuable than anything. More precious and perfect than anything he's ever been able to find. And suddenly, he comes in contact with the pearl of great price. Everything my heart has ever wanted. Everything my deepest desire has ever been inclined toward is wrapped up in this pearl of great price. That's good news. You found the pearl. It's good news. You found truth. Bible says buy the truth and sell it not. There's nothing more pure and perfect than the truth of God's word. And when you find it, you better hook, line, and sinker. Take hold of the truth. You better bury your claws into it and say, no matter what comes, no matter what happens, I've made up my mind. This is the pearl of great price. And when you find it, it's good news. Here's the not so good news for some people. 
And that is the treasure in the field required that he sold everything that he had. Yeah. That is the pearl of great price was available to be purchased. But the cost was everything that you have. It requires you be obsessed with the treasure. It requires you be obsessed with the pearl. Guess what? You don't hear preaching like this very much anymore. It's like, please come accept Jesus. He'll make your life so wonderful. He'll just make everything so perfect. And, oh, the blessings that's going to be in your life. Please come and accept Jesus. And Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of God is like this. You finally found what you've been looking for. And you say, I turn my back on everything that used to be precious to me and used to be valuable to me. Because in terms or in comparison to this kingdom that I've found, it holds no value in this world. When I talk about the profile of someone who is obsessed for Jesus Christ, the followers of Jesus that turn their world upside down and the followers of Jesus today that have the power to turn their world upside down. It's the same mentality, the same approach. I found what I'm looking for. I found something worth investing my life in. I've found something worth pouring myself into. And nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Let me just try to communicate this to you. You know, you're... You would never come out and say it, but I'll go ahead and say it for you. Your dissatisfaction with the Christianity thing, that you don't communicate but you feel, your dissatisfaction with the religion thing, somebody told you all these things about it, and you're like, okay, I'll try it. I'll do whatever's expected of me. Come on, I'll be, your, I'll be a Christian. And then it leaves you empty. It's because you have never sold out. Amen? The gospel, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I better because we're about out of time. The gospel is about being born again. Being born again requires death, burial, and resurrection. The good news is you become a new creature. The bad news is you've got to die. You've got to die out to all the things that used to be important to you. Die out to all the things that were your passionate pursuits in life. Die out to all the things that made your heart beat before. It's like none of that matters anymore. I've decided I want to be a new creature. I want the old things to pass away. Yeah, you're frustrated. You know why you're frustrated? Because you're trying to be a new creature letting the old creature still live. You're trying to buy the pearl, but hold on to your junk. You're trying to buy the field, but you don't want to sell your house. You don't want to let go of what it's going to take to really be sold out for Jesus. Because this book shows to us the profile of the obsessed. It's totally different than the Christianity, the lukewarm, wishy-washy, watered-down Christianity that you see in the world. That doesn't make a change in anybody's life. You know, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. Read it in the Gospels. He said, good master. The Bible says he ran to him. He fell on his knees humbly, had the right posture, the right direction, asked the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord said, you've got to observe the commandments. What commandments? The commandments of the law. 
don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, so on and so forth. The guy began to feel good. He said, all these have I kept my, from my youth. I've been a strict commandment follower. Jesus said, good. The Bible says in his heart, Jesus loved the man. And he says, now only one thing are you lacking. Go, sell all that you have, give your money to the poor, follow me, and we'll use you. We'll have some good things happening. The Bible says he was sad at that saying. Because he was interested in Jesus, he was intrigued by the prospect of Jesus. He found something appealing about the idea of Christianity or following Jesus. But he wasn't willing to die yet. There were some things that had a hold of him. Now please understand, God does not require us to sell everything that we have to be a part of the church or to be filled with God's Spirit. But in essence, there has to be a complete surrender that says, my life is not my own. To you, I belong. I give myself away. This is what Christianity is about. If I'm still holding on to myself, if I'm still in the driver's seat, if I'm still in control, come on somebody, if I'm bucking and fighting at the commandments and the expectations of God, it's going to be a frustrating experience. But when you say, my life is not my own, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to end it all. I'm ready to go where God wants me to go. Then you'll experience the Christianity that gives you joy unspeakable and full of glory. Then you'll experience the peace that passes all understanding. Hallelujah. The peace that doesn't make sense to this world. Come on, somebody praise Him. Is there anybody that's sold out in the house? give you a little comparison here of lukewarm Christianity versus an obsessed Christian. Obsessed, the word simply means to have the mind excessively preoccupied with a single emotion or a single topic. Like the guy that said, I got to have that pearl. Nothing else has my attention. I got to have that pearl. I'm obsessed with that pearl. Everybody else doesn't understand it. But I'm obsessed with that pearl. The man that finds the treasure in a, in a field, he says, it doesn't matter what it costs me or what I have to sell. I'm obsessed with that field. I'm getting that field. His friend, who doesn't know about the treasure in the field, drives by and looks at it and says, are you serious? You're selling your house? You're selling your extra clothes? You're selling your stocks and bonds? You're cashing out of your 403B, 401K, so that you can buy this, bro, I don't know what you've been drinking or who your advisor is, but that's a bad mistake. And you're just like, I know you don't understand, but I know something that you don't know. And I see something that you don't see. And the world, even your friends, even your loved ones, even your family sometimes, when you really become obsessed, will say, that's not necessary. You don't have to go all that far. Nobody expects that. God doesn't expect that out of you. That's unnecessary. Have your life. 
Have your stuff. Do your thing. God never expected that. But you see a treasure that nobody sees. You see a value that nobody sees. Amen. And while others may ridicule and make fun and, and poke fingers at you. Amen. There's something in your spirit that says, I've made up my mind. Let me compare it here. Lukewarm versus obsessed. Lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly because it's expected of them. It's what good Christians do. They give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. But people who are obsessed care more about God's kingdom coming to this earth than about their own lives being shielded from pain or distress. They give freely and openly and without censure. Lukewarm people ask this question and try to find out what is expected of Christians. And they say, that's what I want to do. And they gauge their morality or their goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. And they want the middle ground. They don't want to be that hardcore Christian. But they also want to realize and make sure they're nowhere near as horrible as that guy down the street. They want to be room temperature. Room temperature. And they tend to choose what's popular over what's right whenever there's a conflict between the two. They desire to fit in both at church and outside the church and appear to be more concerned with what people think than what God thinks of their actions. That's what lukewarm people are like. But obsessed people are more concerned with obeying God and doing what's ex- than, than just doing what's expected or fulfilling the status quo. They will do things that don't make sense in terms of this world's idea of success or this, idea, this world's idea of wealth. It's a departure from the values of this world to be obsessed with Jesus Christ. Amen? Lukewarm people will say that they love Jesus, and of course He is a part of their life, but only a part. They give Him a section of their time, section of their money, some of their thought time, but He isn't allowed to control their lives. But a person who is obsessed is characterized by commitment, by a committed, settled, passionate love for God. Above and before everything else and every other person, they are committed to Jesus Christ. They have an intimate relationship with Him. They get down and read their Bible every day because they realize that one hour on Sunday is not enough to get me through the week. Yeah. Lukewarm people are moved by the stories of people who do radical things for Jesus Christ. A missionary comes and tells of God working through them and their sacrifice and commitment, and it moves them. But it doesn't move them enough to do anything. They're moved, but they don't act. They assume that kind of bravado is for extreme Christians, not the average. And they call radical what Jesus expects of all his believers. Take up your cross and follow me. Oh, God, move us, I pray. Jesus, wake us up from our lethargy and our incorrect perception of what it means to be sold out for Jesus Christ. People who are obsessed with Jesus do not consider service a burden. They take joy in loving God. They take joy in loving people. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with neighbors or co-workers or friends. They do not want to make someone uncomfortable by talking about private issues like religion. But obsessed people think about heaven frequently. And they orient their lives around eternity. 
They don't live for today. They don't live for this world. They don't live for the here and now. They are only fixed on eternity. They're not fixed just on the things that are in front of them and around them. And I want to tell you, many people, as I said, are frustrated by Christianity. That in their experience, it's lacked the power that it claimed. It lacked the ability to change their life as it claimed. All the promises that they were given about Christianity have been unfulfilled. They may say, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I started going to church. I tried to clean up my life. But it didn't help. So they may still be in body coming to church, but they're lukewarm. Some of you may be here today and you've given up on God. You've given up on the church thing and religion because it didn't do what it promised it was going to do. In closing today, I want to share with you the message, the good news, the gospel. The good news is Jesus rose from the dead. And the good news to you is... You can have new life. Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. And the good news is, all that guilt, all that frustration with your life, all that sense of emptiness you've been just fighting through, all these things that have caused you to feel hopeless, All of these things Jesus Christ nailed to a tree so that you could become a new creature in Jesus Christ. The good news is you can have a life that means something. The good news is you can have a life. Brother Rick, give me a high five right now. That makes a difference in this world. Brother Rick, would you imagine one year ago yourself teaching a Bible study to what was there, 12 or 13 people here on Tuesday night, brand new people that are telling you now they want to be baptized in Jesus' name. Guess what, my brothers and sisters? You can have a life that makes a difference. You can have a life that makes a difference. God can make all things new. He can take that fear and replace it with faith. He can take that depression and replace it with the joy of the Lord. He can take that emptiness and fill it with His Holy Spirit. But it takes new birth. You've got to be born again. You know, we've heard born again so many times that we just hear it without hearing it. And we think born again is just like an experience. Or being born again is just like, oh yeah, that's the kind of Christian I am. I'm a born again Christian. You ever think about it? I mean, it's kind of a bizarre concept. Born again. Born again. When Nicodemus first heard it, he said, why are you saying i got to be born again? I, I mean, I'm, I'm grown up now. I can't get back into my mother's womb and be born again. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm probably bigger than my mom by now. It's not going to work out. Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you the problem with popular Christianity. It tries to reform people. The gospel is not about reforming people. The gospel is about rebirth. 
And here's the bad news. Rebirth doesn't happen without death. Jesus couldn't come out of the tomb without going to the cross. And the Bible says when you really decide to follow Jesus, it's not about whispering a sinner's prayer, shaking a preacher's hand, signing a card, saying, now I'm a Christian. Uh Uh-huh. You're like, yeah, I tried all that. That's what? It leaves you frustrated and empty. Because that's not the gospel. The gospel is you have to be crucified with Jesus Christ. All the lusts of your flesh, the desires of your flesh, all those old sinful things that leave you feeling guilty the next day. You've got to say, I'm not just going to try to reform my life and try to act better and try to cut back on cigarettes and try to drink less and try to uh, stop gambling as much and, 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 and try to stop watching as much uh, bad stuff as I should. I, I'm going to try to get better. I'm going to try to do better. No, no, that's not how it works. Leave you. That's not what Christianity is. Anybody got me here? It's not about becoming a better person. It's not about works of the flesh. It'll leave you frustrated. But the gospel starts at a cross. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And don't get fearful. We're not going to pull out spikes and drive them into your hands and feet. Because this death is totally voluntary. No one will force you to do it. This death will not bring you physical pain in your body. But it's a decision that says, I'm tired of being in control. I'm tired of doing it my way. I'm tired of being boss in my life. I want to give myself away. I want to lay myself down for the cause of Christ. The apostle said it this way. He says, I am crucified with Jesus Christ, but I'm still alive. But it's not me anymore that's in control. But it's Jesus Christ that lives within me. That's the true new birth experience. You know what Jesus did when he went to the cross? When he went to the tomb? When he came out of the tomb? He was making all things new. He was showing us how to be born again. We have to die. We have to be buried too. We have to have resurrection power in our life. The Bible says we die out to the old man, to the person we used to be, when we give our life completely to the Lord. When we say, I'm all in, 100%. That's what Jesus was saying when he died on the cross. He was saying, I'm totally in this thing. There's nothing you can ask of me that I won't give for the people that I love. I'm all in. And when you make that point, you come to that point of repentance. You say, Jesus, I am all in. My life is yours. I'm giving it to you. I want to be a part of this mission that drove you to the cross. That love for people that took you to the cross. You love people so much that you took spikes in your hands. I only love people that are kind to me. You love the people that were beating you on the back. Lord, let that kind of love consume me and get a hold of me. Drive me to the point. Where I will say, I'm not going to live for the almighty dollar anymore. I'm not going to live for my destiny and future anymore that I had mapped out or my parents had mapped out for me. I'm not going to live for that anymore. But Jesus, I'm going to live for the thing that drove you to the cross. Cause you to give your life. Hallelujah. The Bible says this is repentance. This is the turning point. This is the decision point. And let's stand together right now. Jesus died and then the second step is that he was buried the Bible says we're buried with Jesus Christ in water baptism 
Colossians chapter 2, Romans chapter 6, it says we are buried with him when we're baptized in the waters of baptism. We relate to the burial of Jesus Christ. The body of sin that was crucified when we repented is removed from us when we're baptized in Jesus' name. And we experience resurrection and new life. I'm excited today. I'm encouraged today. Because a life that is given to Jesus is a life that makes a huge difference in the world. I'm excited today because if I will reject the pressure of a self-absorbed world and reject the pressure of lukewarm Christianity and say, guess what? I'm going to be sold out. I'm going to be 100%. I'm going to be radical. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to take that step that says, God, I'm giving it all to you. If I can do that, then God can take my life (laughs) and make a difference. Hallelujah. Here's how we're going to close this service out today. In just a moment, we're going to open this front area here for people to come pray for just a moment before you leave. To make a confession to the Lord and say, God, you know what? i got to admit, <laughs> when the preacher was preaching today, it caused me to realize I've pretty much been living for me and I haven't been living for you. And I want to admit that I haven't been. I believe, Jesus, that you died for me. I believe that, you, that, that living for you is the only life that really matters. And I confess that I've been living for myself instead of you. But Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to make a decision today (laughs) that I found what I'm looking for. It's Jesus. I found what I've been looking for, just like the disciples that saw him walking and they said, I'm forsaking my nets, I'm forsaking my parents, I'm following after Jesus. When you find that, say, Jesus, I found that, and I'm ready. I want to give my life to you. Hallelujah. It's the most important step. Of course, the next step is baptism. But today, there's some people that want to make a decision for Jesus Christ. A decision to live for Him. A decision to follow Him. And there's some of you in this church today that the Word of God has provoked you into realizing, you know what? I love God, but I'm lukewarm. I love Jesus, but I'm not sold out. And I need that fresh fire to fall from heaven in my heart. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, Sister Brown, come let's sing this song together. As we sing this song, I give myself away. If that's the way you feel in this place today, I want you to just kind of slip out of where you are and come up around the front just for a few moments. We're going to talk to Jesus here right now. Give myself away. Give myself away. So you.
Hallelujah. I want us to pray together a prayer of repentance. That's a prayer of giving our life to the Lord. The Apostle Paul said, dying once is not enough, but I die every day because that old flesh tries to resurrect. That old will and carnal nature tries to come back up out of the grave and take back control in my life. And today I want us to make a confession before the Lord. I want us to admit that He's that God's not been first in our life. And I want us to ask Him to forgive us. And I want us to commit that we're going to follow after Him. That we're going to pursue after Him with a totally committed and sold out life. Can we pray together a prayer of repentance? Wherever you are, close your eyes and let's pray. Jesus, I thank You that You died on the cross for my sins. I thank You, Lord, that You loved me when I still stunk. That You loved me when I was miserable and worth nothing. Jesus, I thank you, Lord God, that you gave everything while I was a sinner. (laughs) That kind of love blows me away, and I thank you for it, Jesus. I love you so much for that, Lord God. Jesus, I believe, Lord, I believe your word. I believe the truth today. Hallelujah, Jesus. But God, and I want to tell you, Lord, i got to admit to you today, I know that I've been living for myself. I've just been kind of wrapped up in the things that are important to me, Jesus. I've allowed myself to get lukewarm, Lord God. And I pray, Jesus, that you'd forgive me, Lord God, for my sins. Jesus, I need you to wash me today. I need you to cleanse me. Let a bad attitude get in my heart, Lord God. I let a bad spirit get a hold of me. Jesus, I want you to cleanse me. Wash me, wash me. Wash my mind and my heart. Wash my hands, Lord Jesus. Cleanse me with the precious blood that you shed for me. Today, Lord God, I want to start over. I want to start anew. Jesus, forgive me. God, I want to put you first in my life. Jesus, I want you in the driver's seat. Lord God, I want to listen to your word. I want to be submitted to your word. I want to follow after you. I want to be submitted to sound teaching, Lord God. I love you, Jesus, with all my heart, Lord. Forgive me and cleanse me and wash me in the name of Jesus. Let me be clean before you. Come on, say it right now. If you ask him, the Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive you. God's forgiven you right now. Somebody's getting a fresh start today. Somebody's getting a fresh start right now. Jesus, wash me. Jesus, cleanse me. Hallelujah. Come on. Anybody feel what I feel? Anybody feel faith in the house? Believe that God's heard your prayer. Believe God's answered you. Come on, somebody. Let's praise God for what He's done right now. Hallelujah. God's washed your sins away. God's given you a fresh start today. God's made you clean again today. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Behold, all things are passed away. All things are become new. Old things are passed away. That old nature, that old guilt, those old nasty feelings have passed away. All things have become new. Let's put our hands together and let's thank the Lord for what He's done in this place. Come on, clap your hands and thank Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you're 
part of our church or if you're interested in our church, I want you to be a part of a, of a life group this week. They're going to talk more about the principles that we discussed today, and but more specifically how to put it in practice in your life. If you've been lukewarm, what do I do this week to stop being lukewarm? How do I get the fire burning again? If you're interested in a life group, want to find out about one, Brother Donnie's not here. Brother Steele, stand on the platform so they can see you. He'll make sure you get plugged into a life group. Talk to Pastor Steele, and he will make sure uh, that you get plugged in. And uh, uh, also, before we leave here today, rejoicing and thanking God for what he's done. I want to say thank you to all of our visitors uh, that were with us today. Hopefully, the word of God was not too stout or offensive to you. But I mean, the truth will make a difference in your life. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to invite all of our new members that went through the New Life class yesterday and uh, have become new members of Life Church. I want you guys to come up here around the front in just a moment. We're going to play a happy, upbeat song. And we're going to be dismissed in the name of the Lord. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Come by and welcome them. Shake their hands. Say, welcome to Life Church. You're part of our church. We're glad to have you. And then at the end of the line, is Edgar still here? Edgar, I want you to be up here in front as well. So everybody can come by and give some love to you before they leave. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. here first. Let me do some introductions here. We have got, this is Jennifer Sandoval, and we've got, uh, where's Ruben? Ruben? Ruben Brambila, is that right? Is that good? And uh, Kenya, his wife, and their two children. And also uh, Victor Sandoval, a young man whose heart is surrendered to Jesus. He wants God to do a work in his life. And a wonderful, sweet young lady named... Tina, Tina Valdez. This is Tina right here. And uh, uh, and then we have Sister Amanda. She's the matriarch, Sister Amanda Sandoval. And uh, also uh, we've got David, David Sandoval, who God is beginning to work in his life. And uh, in our session the other night, Brother Steele, I didn't tell you, but we had everybody tell about their first encounter with God. Everybody was telling about their first encounter with God when they were seven, eight, nine years old. We asked David, when was your first encounter with God? He said, two weeks ago when Brother Steele laid his hands on me. I felt the power of God. I felt God touch me for the first time. Natalie. Everybody loves Natalie. Natalie.